0: The Washington Post reports along Ukraine's northern border with Russia fears of a new invasion. Is the Washington Post reporting accurate? Well, for insight, let's turn to our first guest. He's a Moscow-based international relations and security analyst, Mark Sloboda. As always, Mark, welcome back.
1: Dr. Leon Garland, thanks for having me. It's always an honor a pleasure to be on The Critical Hour.
0: I want to read from the open of this story. Uh, The deep trenches and scattered observation posts that marked Ukraine's northern border with Russia were no match for the columns of tanks that rolled across on February 24th. Now, having beaten the Russians back to their side over weeks of battle and at great cost, the border guards at Ukraine's Uh, Chernaiv region are watching warily as their adversaries again, mass troops and equipment. The war here is different from elsewhere in the country where Russian troops are firmly ensconced in Ukrainian territory. This is a cross-border war. Russian tanks lob shells at Ukrainian villages. Bullets fly across the tents, no man's land in sporadic gunfights. Mark, this to me is painting a, a a better picture from the Ukrainian perspective than reality would reflect. Uh, Am I wrong? Your takes here.
1: Yeah. Okay. So the first part of that sentence was accurate when they described that the border patrol, existing border patrol was no match for the columns uh, of invading tanks and other military vehicles. That's true. The Ukrainian uh, border uh, uh, guard, uh, where they didn't surrender – which was most of the country, they folded completely. After that, it gets a little wonky. Um, the Russian forces withdrew from the areas around. Uh, and Sumy and from Kiev a little bit further uh, west as well, not because they were beaten back by Ukrainian forces. That has mm-hmm. There was no pitched battle that defeated Russian forces and drew them back. The Russian forces did meet a lot of resistance, but it is not even exactly clear what their missions were Um, some have suggested that it was uh to um draw fire um uh to prevent reinforcement uh of the Kiev regime's forces in the Donbass, uh, a reconnaissance in force. But uh, whatever, it, it does seem that they met more resistance than they wanted to press on in the face of. Mm-hmm. But that's quite something different from being beaten back. The Russian forces withdrew, and then the Kiev regime forces. Came forward, but it wasn't an, 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 a, uh, an active driving forward. It was, oh, they're gone. Let's we move <laughs> up now.
2: <laughs> OK, thank you.
1: Uh, so now um, there I don't think that there's any immediate threat. Uh, or promise, depending on your point of view, of Russian forces re-entering the area soon, although I'm almost certain they will at some point. Right now, it does seem that there is a bit of cross-border artillery fire, uh, but um, I, I think that the time when Russian forces re-enter those area is probably some months down the line.
3: You know Mark I'm reading a lot I'm on Telegram a lot and I try to find as much as I can and what I'm seeing is um a lot of Ukrainian positions being surrounded a lot of pictures that probably we shouldn't talk about on the air a prob a lot of uh I'm seeing videotapes of Ukrainian units saying hey we don't have guns we don't have bullets. We don't have anything. We're upset, feeling that they've been uh, forsaken by their leaders. It seems to me that the reality that I'm experiencing by my researching online, maybe I'm wrong, paints the opposite of what they're, pain, they're saying, that the Ukrainian military, particularly in the eastern in e- eastern part where the majority of the fighting is going on now, is in very, very serious trouble. Mark.
1: Yeah. So starting, I would say, last Thursday, there actually has been a sudden break in the propaganda wall presented by the Western mainstream media in Kiev. And if you'll notice that before that day, every article was about, oh, Russia's uh, awful military invasion. Oh, they're doing terrible. They're stagnating. Russian forces are incompetent. They're exhausted. They're spent. And then suddenly, starting late Thursday or Friday, it kind of shifted 180 degrees and you saw all this talk of russia's uh, russia has made a turning point they're suddenly winning in in the east and uh they're advancing um and uh ukrainian forces are uh kiev regime forces are not in good shape um and it, it it's not a type of sudden reversal of fortune. It's a sudden reversal in that they're actually starting to print some of the truth of what's going on there. There was one excellent piece in the Washington Post uh, this was out on uh, May 26th Ukrainian volunteer fighters in the east feel abandoned and they talked to a group of uh, Ukrainian uh, fighters that deserted they're talking to a deserted uh, – a commander who deserted. And he talks about the conditions, how they can't simply fight anymore. They don't have any weapons capable of fighting back. They're being tossed forward untrained onto the front as cannon fodder. They're living on at times a potato a day. Um, and the attrition that their unit has suffered, which he suggests is, is you know kind of an average, is half – He's lost over half of his forces due to either um, deaths, injuries or desertion. And then he himself is now being charged with desertion because he came to report. He came to The Washington Post to talk about how bad things are at the front and uh, slowly but surely that that wall is cracking and breaking. And they're starting to admit that uh, the Kiev regime's forces are are being overwhelmed in their strongest area of defense in their greatest quality and number of troops in the east where they've been preparing for eight years and they're still being rolled
0: well i don't know if you ever heard the adage uh, mark that a potato a day keeps the russians away I, that probably has been proven not to be true now uh but talking about the break in the media on thursday or friday Does what you're seeing in that regard or that context, does that mirror what I think I've been seeing in terms of reporting from, well, we got this RT report, top U.S. general suggests how Ukraine conflict should end. Uh, You've got other reports, the former secretary of state that went to China with with Nixon, Kissinger, saying that, hey, United States, you got to find an end to this thing. Uh, This isn't going to bode well if you let this go for another two weeks. There are there are very prominent figures who are now coming out and saying you got Italy proposing uh, uh, peace talks. You've got Germany. So do those messages correlate or coincide with what you were just talking about in terms of reporting on the uh, on the military side?
1: sure i mean we even saw uh uh, burrell the eu president uh who last week was saying that this must be won by ukraine on the battlefield and russia must lose putin must lose now suddenly talking about a negotiated settlement as well uh so i think that this is a reflection of the fact that um one that um all of the western weapons uh that the West has poured into uh, the Kiev regime. Uh, such so that they've depleted their own stockpiles. Everyone says this from the US to Canada to the EU. Um, A limited amount of those weapons ended up reaching the front. Many of them were destroyed by Russian strikes. Others were uh, derouted by uh, Ukrainian corruption and are now being sold in Syria, (laughs) likewise, according to reports. But uh, what has reached the front hasn't changed things at all. After a month of softening up artillery pot, uh, fire on these heavy fortifications that have been built in for eight years, Russia is now advancing on this salient in Donbass where the, the best of the Kiev regime's forces and the largest grouping of them is dug in. And they're, they were on their t- timetable. And while the U.S. was saying stagnating, Boris Johnson was saying no progress, what they were actually doing is shaping the battlefield. Uh, They were creating their cauldrons and mini cauldrons, and they were deteriorating the fortifications. And now they're coming in from multiple directions at once. And now suddenly everyone realizes, uh, um, hey, suddenly they're winning. Well. This is the way war works. This is what they've been doing. That was their plan. And this is what they've done. How nice that you finally noticed it.
3: Well, you know, Mark, I think the situation is about to take a dramatic change in favor of Ukraine, because I don't know if you know it. The Azov battalion has changed their patch. And they've taken the wolf's angle and the black sun off it. And they've just got like some kind of thing that looks like the uh, the pitchfork that Aquaman was carrying around. That's what they're going with now. I think that's going to take things in a different direction. But let me ask you this. In all honesty, why would the Russians at this point, what would be their motivation for, um, you know, negotiation at this point? I mean, you're winning in a route. And at this point, it's like, ha ha, we're def- beating you. We're winning. There's no you have no chance. Uh Oh, we're losing in a route. OK, let's negotiate. I mean, wouldn't the Russians just say that's nah, OK? Um, we will take a complete surrender and give us everything we want. Anytime you're ready to do that, that's fine. Other than that, now we're good. What do you think, Mark?
1: Yeah, first of all, yeah, there is a rebranding attempt uh, to to try to whitewash uh, the the uh, Kiev regime state armed and funded neo Nazi Azov battalion. They changed their symbol from the wolf angel to, to um, the Ukrainian national symbol is the trident. They've uh, made their trident out of three swords, and that is their new symbol. But you know, you you can put lipstick on a pig. Uh, but a neo-Nazi is still a neo-Nazi. <laughs> it doesn't change. The tattoos are still there. You can put yeah, lipstick. Yeah,
0: on yeah, You yeah, can put yeah, lipstick yeah. on a neo-Nazi. You can
1: put <laughs> lipstick on a neo-Nazi, and <laughs> that doesn't actually surprise me, considering the, the mental instability of some of those individuals. But um, so um, yeah, um, that that has not definitely not changed the character uh, of them at all. Um, but you are seeing a uh, a recognition that th- the situation at the front is not what the Western media has been telling everyone for weeks now, months actually.
0: Uh, Russia seizes half of key city uh, Severodonetsk. U- EU bans most Russian oil. So this seizing half of the city is an indication, again, that Ukraine isn't really pushing a whole lot of people back. And this EU banning most Russian oil, talk about that. We've got about two minutes.
1: Yeah, so Russia uh, and the allied Donbass forces are moving forward in this salient from the North the south and the east, and at the top of the salient is this the kind of combined urban areas of Severodonetsk and Lysychansk. Uh, by the the weekend, uh, the Allied Russian and Donbas forces were already deep in Severodonetsk, and we saw Kiev regime forces taping themselves fleeing uh, at high speed uh, into Lysychansk. There's still some mopping up operations there, particularly in the industrial area. But uh, the the fight is already pressing on from there. Um, The EU couldn't uh, come to any uh, unanimous agreement to uh, uh, ban Russian oil. Uh, So to make uh, Hungary happy, which refused to participate, they've agreed on a partial phased uh, operation uh, to try to limit the amount of oil instead. And we'll, we've already seen uh, gasoline prices, petrol prices in Europe, uh, in the UK, reach record highs just since that was announced. So good luck with that.
0: Really quickly, we got 30 seconds left. The United States and some of its allies are still pouring more money into the Ukraine. Well, if the whipping is what the whipping is, then Where's the money going and who's going to be left to fight?
1: Yeah, uh, well, a lot of it is going to the U.S. military industrial complex and so is gunning other U.S. allies. But um, a significant portion of it is going to keep this corrupt regime uh, afloat. But unfortunately, a significant portions of that goes right out the back door. And as I said earlier, we've already seen U.S. weapons Mm -hmm. being sold to jihadists in Syria.
0: Mark Schlabota, as always, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate that analysis. We look forward to having you back. Thanks for having me. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more near the side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. Eurozone inflation hits another record high as food and energy prices soar. Prices in the Eurozone touched another record high in May, challenging the European Central Bank's view that gradual interest rate increases from July will be enough to stem the soaring inflation. For insight, let's turn to our next guest. He's an associate professor of economics at the University of Missouri, Kansas City, former president of the National Economics Association, Dr. Linwood Tahid. As always, sir, welcome back. Thank you. So in the 19 countries sharing the euro, inflation surged to 8.1 percent in May, up from 7.4 percent in April, beating expectations for a 7.7 percent amid steep price increases. Uh, This is according to Eurostat, from release information released today. And this is challenging the uh, European Central Bank's view that gradual interest rate increases from July will be enough to stem the soaring inflation. Dr. Tahit, this sounds eerily reminiscent to what's going on here right now. So are the challenges facing the EU similar to what's happening here? And if so, can the U.S. learn anything from the European Central Bank?
4: Well, I think the challenges are are, are very very similar. Uh, Europe has has a a a other uh, some other problems that are going to contribute to inflation, rising inflation there. But but they're similar because uh, the big the big component of, of today's inflation is not too much money chasing too few goods. That's the standard explanation. But but too few too few goods. This is a supply driven inflation. And what I mean by that is that there is a shortfall in production relative to what it was before COVID. I mean, you know, COVID is still with us. It's still expanding in Europe. And even though that hasn't had uh, uh, is not having a as large an effect on the economy as it was during the during the uh, depths of COVID when economies were shut down, it still is is creating a a problem in in terms of uh, economic activity. Uh, Much of that economic activity in COVID is is being caused by um, uh, uh, export. Uh, decrease, uh, particularly out of out of the Middle East. Uh, excuse me, out of out of Asia, and particularly out of China, where China is shutting down its economy to try to deal with COVID. That's creating a shortfall. There is the supply chain crisis, which emerged uh, during the uh, the depths of COVID. Uh, there was always a a problem in supply chain with this just in time inventory uh, process, but COVID showed the weakness of it, and that has not uh, re- recovered. And probably, uh, by experts, is it's not going to recover until uh, perhaps next year if it does recover. So that shortfall. Then we have climate change uh, affecting agriculture and food production, and then you you add to that the uh, the uh, the oil embargo that the Europeans, and the Americans, but the Europeans mostly are having on, on Russian oil. Uh, that's adding a, a new dimension for the Europeans because um, the U.S. didn't get very much oil from Russia. Uh, the um, the uh, uh, Europeans are getting uh, as much as, as, as 90% of, of their oil from, from Russia. And so the sanctions on Russia is going to cause a huge increase in inflation but also a slowdown in production because oil is used for
3: for energy production. Let me ask you this it seems to me um strange when i look at what the leaders of europe are doing um as far as as far as the number of the sanctions but in particular the the recent the most recent um oil embargo in that this is going to make life much more difficult for their citizens. It's going to make it much diff- more difficult for the industry. It seems like they have a political slash idean ideological initiative going on here that does not take the lives of everyday citizens into account. And I might add, since this is a world market, they're going to their actions are going to raise the prices, which means that. Actually, Russia will have to sell less oil and make as much or more money. It just seems to me strange. Your thoughts on all of that? Putting that together.
5: Well,
4: if if they're able to to go through this uh, sanction and uh, actually ban Russian oil, uh, this is this is only uh, oil that uh, that's coming through. Uh, pipelines are okay. Either this is oil that's coming to to Europe by tanker. Uh, pipelines is about one third of the of the shipment of oil from Russia to Europe, so the other two thirds by by tanker is is sanctioned, uh, but but this could be um, a a a red herring, if you will. It could be a um, a disguise because it's very possible to have oil sh- shipped out of Russia by tanker, and in the um, transit from Russia to Europe, that oil can be mixed with non-Russian oil. And if it's mixed, you have a tanker, uh, a, a shipment of oil that is mixed with non Russian oil so that the non Russian oil becomes 51% of the total oil, that oil is considered non Russian oil. And then that oil can go to Europe, and and it's not, not part of the sanctioning. Of course, what that means is that you'll have lots of these uh, um, swap operations occurring out at sea or at some, some port, which will raise the price of oil. So even if the Europeans are able to eventually get Russian oil through this oil laundering process, the price of oil is still going to be very expensive. It's going to be much higher than it would ordinarily. Um, uh, and, and so the idea that the Europeans, for example, can can uh, wean themselves off Russian oil, I think, is a fiction. Uh, so leaders must be thinking that they're going to get oil in the black market uh, through, through oil laundering so that they don't cause a lot of distress on their citizens. Because if they cause the stress that this is likely to cause uh, with a complete oil shutdown, we're going to have political turmoil in in, in Europe.
0: In fact, Garland and I have been talking about the potential for that turmoil, talking with you and others, for for quite a while. And there's a story, Britain's warned of winter blackouts. Electricity across the U.K. could be rationed as the energy crisis deepens. As many as six billion British households, I'm sorry, six million British households could be subjected to power cuts this winter. It is said that imports of natural gas from Norway could be halved next winter amid surging EU demand. I don't know how the Europeans will sit quietly, idly by, and 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 shiver behind something that is really of the United States creation. Uh, your thoughts, Dr. Dahiya? It, it
4: it is perplexing that that the Europeans are willing to to shoot themselves in the foot, um, uh, and and simply do so because the Americans say uh, we want you to do this uh the, the, the Europeans are not going to be able to get um, to make up the oil shortfall from Russia uh from uh shipments from the US if the US were to try to ship uh, enough oil to the to, uh, Europe to uh, to Europe to cover the shortfall oil prices in the US would would climb and uh, so so I don't see the uh, the, the Biden administration uh, willing to 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 cause turmoil here in order to to uh, ship oil to to, to Europe. Uh, the Europeans, I think, are on their own on this, and they're shooting themselves in the foot. And why they're doing so uh, for for so little in return from uh, from Russian sanctions or or U.S. support is is kind of perplexing. Uh, the sanctions are not really hurting Russia very much. Uh, there's plenty of goods uh, in Russia. The, the, the store shelves are stocked. Uh, the ruble is at its all-time high in terms of its purchasing power. And uh, pretty much uh, life is going on as, as it was. And, and Putin has 80% approval rating, whereas uh, European leaders, are their approval ratings are sliding. And so for the Europeans to continue along this this um, uh, path is is perplexing unless they're simply just being subservient to U.S. interests.
3: You know, it seems to me that there's also something else being created here. I'm reading that um, the country that a number of countries, Russia, Iran, Um, India, China are trading more and more in their own currencies to get away from the dollar hegemony, to be quite frank. Um, So it seems that not only is this having an effect on, uh, you know, the Russia and uh, Russian economy, EU economy, U.S. economy, but it's creating a, a new dynamic that can't be turned back. Your thoughts?
4: Yes, there there's a new dynamic and there's a twist to it I mean the idea of getting off of the dollar uh, for for international trade um, has been in in process with with the chinese for for about ten years in and trying and wanting to make yuan the one um, the a an international trading currency. Uh, that would be going from dollars to the yuan to buy oil or gas or or, or uh, foodstuffs and so forth. But but there's a twist to this because uh, Europe, um, uh, excuse me, Russia and China, are not insisting that their trading partners trade with them in rubles or yuan. They're allowing currency swaps. So for example, India, can buy things uh, from Russia using rupees, their national currency and then the russians buy things from indians uh, using uh the ruble the, the russian national currency that's a twist because what it what it does it, it it democratizes the process of international trade because when you have to trade in someone else's currency that that uh, the uh, the producer of that other currency actually has the upper hand in trade you have to get their currency in order to buy things Uh, But but, uh, allowing these currency swaps is actually um, better for the the, the smaller smaller economies because they don't have to artificially uh, get the other countries, the bigger countries Mm -hmm. in currency, in order to trade. So this is is, uh, not only de-dollarization, but it's also, in in some sense, a democratization of of international trading in terms of um, economic terms.
0: And Dr. Linwood Taheed, as always, sir, thank you so much for your time. Greatly, greatly appreciate that analysis, and we look forward to having you back. Thank you, sir. Folks, you're listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. South China Morning Post writes, US's China strategy, a path to confrontation. Beijing warns. Chinese foreign minister tells conference that Washington's extreme anxiety is unwarranted. Henry Kissinger says the risk of conflict is growing as technology advances. For insight into this, we turn to our next guest. He's a writer and professor of East Asian and global history at New Mexico State University, Dr. Ken Hammond. As always, Dr. Hammond, welcome back.
6: Pleasure to be here today.
0: So the South China Morning Post continues, the U.S. strategy towards China has pushed the two powers into confrontation, threatening turmoil from other nations, Chinese Foreign Minister Wang Yi warned today. Talk about this in my particularly, uh, Ken, from the perspective of I don't think enough people in this country pay attention to what the Chinese are saying and how they're saying it because they tend to be very measured, very careful in what they say, when they say it, how they say it. And so when they start issuing warnings, they tend to do what they say they're going to do. Dr. Ken Hammond.
6: Well, I think that's very true. The uh, you know the Chinese in general have a, uh, a rather uh, how shall we say restrained style, uh, rhetorical style in their in their diplomatic statements and their government statements. And Wang Yi has certainly been a, a very good practitioner of that. I think he's always tried to keep a, a pretty level head in these uh, situations. Uh, and I think that that you know. Uh, in some ways, uh, the United States has just been so relentless in its characterizations, its negative characterizations of China. Uh, I'm sure that there must be times when, when uh, you know, people on the Chinese side, you just kind of want to throw their hands in the air and be like, you know, what what are we supposed to do? We, you know. They they have been very clear and very consistent in their positions on a wide wide range of issues, and yet what they say is is routinely just just either ignored or dismissed, um, and and the American uh, the American line just continues to to churn itself out. So, I can imagine that it's a very frustrating experience. Um, I think that that you're quite right that that. For the Chinese to, to be saying, look, you know, you really need to back it off. You really need to calm it down a little bit. It's, it's only common sense again, but uh, it does reflect, I think, a certain, I don't know, uh, a certain reaction finally to, uh, to, the, to the relentlessness of the American uh, campaign.
3: You know, the other thing is this, I think if you could speak to this in context of the other issues that the American empire is facing right now, certainly there's the Ukraine issue with um, not going in the direct, you know, uh, despite the rhetoric, not going in the direction that they want their allies in Europe and their coalition there. Some have used the words starting to crumble and that their economic um, outlook is catastrophic, to be quite frank. Um, The issues at home economic economically and the u.s is still pushing this and you know pushing this it just shows and just an incredible instability a disastrous instability in the biden in administration in that all of these things going on at once and they they can't see any anything other than well let's go to china and let's try to you know light a fire over here too they're like arsonist your thoughts
6: <laughs> that's that's a good characterization uh yeah no i think that that you know the american empire feels threatened uh and it is it has been uh over over recent decades it has been you know the global hegemon and so american interests as they like to call them uh, can be found all over the world the united states has has you know inserted itself into and and attempted to dominate and control countries all over the world peoples all over the world uh, and so uh, we've talked about this a few times before Whenever anyone you know even if it 's a little tiny country like the Solomon Islands, for example, steps out of line or does anything that that is other than just complete subordination to American control, uh, you know uh, the, 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 the leaders in Washington freak out and they get, and you know it 's like a zero sum game for them, uh, and so any deviation from the American dominant position is 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 quite alarming to them. And the problem is, of course, for them right now, there's a lot of deviation. You know, there's a lot of people around the world who aren't lining up, who aren't towing the line, as it were, uh, you know, for the American uh, uh, empire. And, and the leaders here, and this is bipartisan, you know, it's on both sides of the aisle. This isn't something that, that is a, a Democratic or a Republican issue. The, the American political elite is pretty unified in its hysterical response to the erosion of its power. And so, you know, we see these we see we see this very unrealistic uh, posture by figures like Blinken and, and Biden when he's able to be coherent that that, uh, you know, we're just going to run everything and we're going to we're going to keep our our finger on the pulse everywhere around the planet, and we're just going to crack down on anybody who steps out of line. And, you know, it's as you say, it's not going very well for them in Europe. It's not going very well for them in the Pacific. It's not going very well for them in other parts of the world. And so, you know, I think there's a sense of desperation that's, that's sort of churning away inside the White House and Congress and, you know, the various media boardrooms around the country as well. So I, I think that that we're likely to see more of this kind of, you know, bully posturing by figures like Blinken in in the months uh, to come, especially as we run up towards the midterm elections here in the U.S.
0: There is an interesting piece in the Asia Times reports weighing America's repivot away from Asia. The administration was supposed to double down on indo pacific engagement, but the Ukraine war dominates his attention and agenda. His trip to to Asia came against the backdrop of a war in Europe that is consuming much of America's political, diplomatic, military, and media bandwidth. When I read that, what I took away from this article from Asia Times, it was almost as though They were saying that the United States is distracted and that what the United States is facing, what what wasn't stated in the article was that a lot of the countries that the United States would normally depend on to fall in line are no longer falling in line. And that what Joe Biden now is facing as he's going through Asia and whatnot, it's not as much of what's happening in Ukraine. It's the fact that other countries are realizing that the hegemon is no longer as strong as it used to
6: be. Well, I think that's that's exactly uh, uh, the read that I took away from that as well. And I think that that's a, a, a pretty interesting development, you know. Biden's trip to Japan and South Korea and the convening of this quadrilateral uh, group and the announcement of this uh, Indo-Pacific economic forum you know none of that went uh, according to the American uh, agenda uh, you know they they couldn't get agreement on uh, on on you know statements that that out you know, overtly condemned Russia or, or criticized China. They had to drop Taiwan from participation in the Indo-Pacific Economic Forum because, of course, Taiwan is part of China and they excluded China. So, you know, that that was a problem. Uh, you know, the, the Biden trip to East Asia, I think, although you wouldn't understand this from from, you know, the Times or the or the Washington Post, was basically a failure. And I think that that's what this Asia Times article was kind of pointing out. I, I thought it was a, a curious spin, in some ways, to suggest that there's an American pivot away from Asia. Mm-hmm. I think it's not so much an American pivot away from Asia as the failure uh, of you know of of the pivot to Asia to get the kind of traction that the Americans wanted. But I do think that it it it's a reflection of of the problems that American policy in the in the Pacific, whether it's East Asia, Southeast Asia, South Asia, all that region, uh, you know, they're, they're really having kind of a tough time. And, and uh, again, that may be part of why Blinken felt the necessity to make this kind of more assertive uh, statement, although he was also, of course, trying to clean up uh, Biden's uh, mis- misstatements, as they like to call them, uh, about the Taiwan
3: situation well and and maybe i would put it like this maybe instead of a us pivot away from asia it's an asian pivot away from the us and towards china uh, yeah,
6: that's that's that, that's good i think that's a, that's a good uh, a good characterization
3: you know, I'm thinking of what happened in the Philippines where the person who is once, um, you know, to reconcile their differences, shall we say, or, or continue to have um, good relations with China wins. Even Australia, a part of the U.S. empire, where we get the same thing. I mean, I'm not saying that the new Australian government is some dovish government by any stretch of the imaginations, but they're a far cry from Scott Morrison. And the second in charge is uh, ethnically Chinese. What are your thoughts about the way Politics are playing in that area, and how that's affecting the u s empire's uh devious plans
6: well I think you know we 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 can see all over uh uh asia uh and 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 down in in uh in the in the australian area as well out in the pacific as well we can see lots of countries where the domestic political i don't know calculus i suppose you might say uh is shifting away from uh from the united states even with even with a lot of uh efforts on the part of the U.S. to shore up its position. Uh, you know, the the situation, for example, in Pakistan, where, you know, Imran Khan was ousted from power, and yet now he's in a position of calling for new elections. And I think that, uh, you know, the ability of the U.S. to just call the shots there has uh, has been declining. Uh, Modi in India, you know, certainly not a a bosom buddy of China, but refusing to go along with uh, the American demands that India condemn the Russian invasion of uh, Ukraine and all this. uh, You know, the U.S. is having a a difficult time coping with the political realities of countries that no longer see the U.S. as the only game in town. It doesn't mean that everybody is lining up to join some new Chinese domination of the world. It's not that at all. It's it's the idea though that countries around the world uh, want to go their own way. They want to improve their own situations. If if China can be part of that and help them out, that's great. But that's not you know that's not the agenda of constructing some new alternative uh hegemon it's it's a multipolar multicentric system that seems to be emerging but that's not what the united states wants the united states wants to be you know the big gun the cops of the world the 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 dominant power everywhere and so you know they they can only think of it the American political elites can only think of it in terms of you know, a flip side of themselves, that, that if, if it's not going to be America dominating the world, then it must be the Chinese trying to dominate the world. And that's, that's just not a realistic uh, understanding of things, but that does seem to be what animates a lot of what comes out of Washington.
0: RT reports Taiwan claims major Chinese warplane incursion. The island republic, which China considers part of its territory, has said it was the largest such move since January. Taiwanese air force jets scrambled to intercept some 30 Chinese military aircraft as they entered the island's air defense zones yesterday. This is is separate from the joint operation that China was involved in with Russia. Uh, This is another very clear point by China, we're not afraid of you.
6: Well, I think, you know, it's a fascinating uh, article. You read down into it, and I was also reading the uh, the Guardian coverage of, uh, of this today. Uh, it's, it's, it's pretty interesting that on the one hand, of course, these, these air defense zones, these are just arbitrary things that, that various countries have, have declared. They have no uh, you know, legal status—they're mm-hmm. they're not anything that that's recognized uh, in, in treaties or law or anything like that. And in fact, the, the, the zone that Taiwan uh, asserts uh, covers a, a considerable chunk of Fujian Province on the mainland. So basically, Taiwan is telling the uh, the PLA that they can't fly planes over their own <laughs> bases,
3: right? So it's
6: a—you know—I think that that the the absurdity of these air defense zones is, is kind of interesting here, but. Down in the body of of the Guardian article, and I I think this may have been in the RT piece too, it noted that uh, the the brief incursion into part of this zone uh, was down uh, over some uh, waters southwest of uh, of Taiwan. And uh, it was actually over the Pratus Islands, which are part of the the South China Sea uh, situation, except we never hear about the Pratus Islands because those are islands that are controlled by the authorities on Taiwan. And so while mainland government, you know, the PRC is condemned for what it's doing on the islands in the South China Sea that are under its control. The United States never says anything about the Pratas islands, mm-hmm. even though their legal status is exactly the same.
5: You know? mm-hmm. So,
6: again, it's just it's just an example of, of the sort of double think that that goes on. But, yes, this uh, clearly the Chinese are, are uh, you know, the PLA is sending a little bit of a message here and saying to the Americans. Uh, I think that's the real intended audience here. Uh, don't 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 give us this this <laughs> stuff about, you know, Uh, we're going to defend Taiwan because uh, Taiwan is part of China. You're obligated to that position. And, you know, we can fly our planes where we want. You know, at the same time, the U.S. just sent a destroyer through the Taiwan Straits violating the territorial waters of China in its usual cavalier way. And, you know, so whose tights should be in a twist, I think, is is, is, it's not exactly the Americans that ought to be upset about things.
0: Dr. Ken Hammond, as always, thank you so much for your time. Greatly appreciate that analysis. We look forward to having you back.
6: Always a pleasure to be here.
0: Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. Thank you, Wilmer. Popularresistance.org reports Gustavo Petro wins in Colombia. Gustavo Petro and Rodolfo Hernandez are the candidates for the presidency of Colombia that will be measured in the second round after not reaching the necessary number of votes defined by the Colombian rule of 50% plus one. What does this mean for Colombia going forward? For Insight, let's turn to our next guest. He's the national organizer of the Black Alliance Repeat and an editor and contributing columnist for the Black Agenda Report. He serves on the executive committee of the U.S. Peace Council and leadership body of the U.S.-based United National Anti-War Coalition and the steering committee of the Black Is Back Coalition. Uh, he is o- Ajamu Baraka, and he joins us from Colombia. Welcome back.
2: Thank you. Glad to be here.
0: So give us your sense. What's happening on the ground? And uh, Gustavo Petro, the candidate for the historical pact, he uh, received about 8.5 million votes, uh, about 40 percent, while Hernández got, we'll say, 6 million votes and received about 28 percent. Explain to us the dynamics of this and what does it really mean for the Colombian politics going forward.
2: Well, it's really interesting because Hernández basically came out of nowhere, um, but he had a whole lot of money behind him, um, and was able to creatively use social media to, in essence, build a name for himself and to end up coming in number two. The dynamic, as uh, I see it, is that, uh, the, um, um, Ubista, uh, uh candidate who came in number three, uh, U-R-B-I, um, uh, I mean, he, he was the one that the, the, the the right in, in government was supporting, um, but what they did, they hedged their bets by also throwing money behind Hernandez, with the intent that, uh, and because they saw they saw the polls, that they will be able to then combine their forces, um, at in in the second round, and that's exactly what happened. Many people were hoping that uh, uh, Gustavo and um and and francia would uh, would win uh in the first round um uh but that didn't happen and now we go to the second round the interesting it was everything is really about this is interesting but it is, we have to remind people that that francia marquez is the vp with uh gustavo uh, uh petro and that uh you know, it, it just makes it a historic uh, campaign and ticket because Gustavo is a ex-guerrilla, uh, progressive uh, individual, a friend that comes out of the black movement, a member of the uh, uh, black uh, community process, um, and so you know this would be a, a major shift in Colombian politics if they were able, in fact, to win. But we see that the the, the dirty politics are already beginning to emerge. We even saw some of that um, uh, on Sunday during the actual election itself, uh, information that came from some of the independent observers. Uh, and so it, it, it's, it promises to be uh, a bit nasty. And of course, with the U.S. always uh, in the in the wings, watching and moving and manipulating stuff.
3: Um, what have we, you know, and I've been I've been paying a lot of attention to this to Gustavo Petro. But one thing I haven't done is read much on his platform. Does he do you know much about his platform? What what changes he and adjustments he would make if, if he gets elected or has he announced a lot?
2: Well, you know, they 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 have been I mean, the basic elements of their of their platform is that they are going to. Uh, provide the changes in the tax processes in this country to allow more uh, revenue to address some of the material needs of the people. Uh, He frames his his sort of his policies that he's calling uh, democratic capitalism, whatever that's supposed to be. (laughs) But uh, it is supposed to be based on an economy that addresses the the material need of, of the people. Uh, they are uh, making an argument, and France is a little bit more clearer than p- perhaps uh, Gustavo is, and and that is that um, they have to address the issue of violence in the country. Um, there's some intimation that there may be some changes in in the relationship in terms of the with the U.S. in terms of of the access of the U.S. to various bases, but they have not made that a major uh, element to deal with at this point. But they're running basically a sort of a populist. Um, campaign, uh, again, addressing uh, their, their concerns with the, with the working class uh, or who Francis refers to as the people who are considered to be the nobodies. So it's a populist uh, campaign uh, generating a lot of hope uh, among progressives uh, here in this country. Um, and as I said, it would, sh- it would signal a major political shift uh, in the entire region if they, in fact, were able to win on June 19th.
0: Uh, two questions. One, you mentioned at the end of your answer to the first question that the United States was in the background in terms of uh, its hands and involvement in machinations in the election process. If you could elaborate on that. And when you – I always uh, suggest to people when they're – listening or having conversations like this, that they pull up a map so that they can understand the geopolitical aspects involved. So uh, Colombia borders Venezuela, Ecuador, Peru and Brazil and Panama. So to talk about the after you talk about the United States hand involved here, understanding where Colombia fits in the region, that also is very important as it relates to U.S. interests and the United States' perception of protecting its interests.
2: Well, you, you're absolutely right. I mean, Colombia is, is a key state uh, because it's one of the few states that uh, still allows for U.S. Uh, geopolitical interests uh, to have um, um, disproportionate sway over Colombian foreign policies. Um, And because of that, and because of the nations that it borders, in particular uh, Venezuela, it's seen by the U.S. as a a key ally. And when I say in the background, we saw, for example, back in March, uh, as we're heading into this electoral season, or really part of it, but heading toward the election itself, uh, you know, Joe Biden uh, reiterates the importance of Colombia and the special relationship between the U.S. and Colombia. And many of us thought this was a uh, a curious thing to say at this point. Uh, could that be seen as interference? Well, Francia Marquez says that it was, and she points to the evidence to that. That shortly after uh, that commentary, uh, we see that the head of the Colombian military breaks breaks uh, tradition and actually comes out uh, uh, against uh, Gustavo and Francia. Um, and so, you know, this is a suggestive su- suggestive of how far uh, the political right might be going. Uh, and it suggests, too, that if they decided to go all the way, if they ended up losing on the 19th, uh, it suggests that perhaps, you know, once they uh, unleash chaos in the country, uh, they don't have to they wouldn't be too concerned about any direct uh, uh, condemnation coming from the U.S. Uh, so it made it a very dangerous situation. So this is what I mean by in the background. We know that they have been having high level meetings. There was a, a high level delegation that came to the country a couple of weeks ago uh, to meet with Colombian officials, including military officials. Why would you have those kinds of meetings two weeks out from an election? All of these things suggest uh, that uh, they are signaling that they don't want to see any change uh, in this country.
3: How long do we have before the um, the, the next election? And, and is there any process? What happens between then, then and now? What do you see going on? Well, the, the second round takes place on June 19th, so
2: about three weeks. Uh, and what we're going to have is... Uh, People are now evaluating uh, where the votes were cast, um, and the key for uh, uh, Petro and Marquez is going to be uh, turnout on June 19th. Now, the issue we have with, with turnout is that, you know, the turnout wasn't what it could have been in certain areas where they could have gotten more votes because of, 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 of intimidation because of, of of vote suppression, military vote suppression, where certain communities were not allowed to go to the polls, okay? So there's going to have to be a demand that the state guarantee the security of people who want to, in fact, cast a vote. The business class has mobilized all of their resources, all of their uh, propaganda channels uh, to suggest that uh, a win by um, uh, Petro and Marquez uh, would be transforming Colombian society into Cuba or Venezuela. Uh, and so the, the lines of demarcation are, are drawn and drawn fairly sharply between a so called left and a right. Uh, and within the context of Colombian politics, uh, what that means also is violence. And that we're going to see probably more of as we go toward uh, June 19th, unfortunately.
0: So the uh, so Alba and the TCP rejects discriminatory summit of the Americas. Venezuela welcomes the support. Uh, Maduro praised the brave voices that have risen against U.S. hegemonic interests. Talk about, as we get closer to this summit of the Americas and the fact that the United States uh, has excluded Venezuela, Cuba, and Nicaragua, but as I understand it, Cuba's invitation is uh still somewhat tenuous uh, or and but Cuba's saying they're not going so talk about the, the impact that this is having on the region and
2: perceptions in the region well you know I think that people have put too much um, emphasis on this gathering uh, we have that is the Black Alliance of peace we call for the nations of the of the region to in fact boycott. Uh, this 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 gathering. That the U.S. We say the U.S. has no standing to be able to be the host of this of this um, uh, collection of of nations in our region. Why? You can't be a partner and a hegemon at the same time. And the U.S. has demonstrated that it prefers to be a hegemon and it doesn't respect the the national sovereignty of nations in this country. So we we hope that. Uh, more nations would take the same position that the Cubans have taken and that even participate in the sideshow what is this sideshow s- supposed to produce I mean the most important thing happening next week is not going to be the the meeting of the states but in fact the meetings of the peoples uh, who have organized alternative uh, gatherings uh to into to, to enter, into into to uh, uh, relate to uh, ourselves uh, to build uh, and strengthen our relationships with uh, or organizations here in the region uh, to increase uh, the power of the people. That's going to be more important than this, uh, uh,
3: these photo ops uh, that the summit uh, actually provides. And, uh, you know, I see ALBA-TCP rejects the discriminatory summit of the Americas. For people who don't know, can you let uh, our listeners know what is t- ALBA-TCP? Well, ALBA is the alternative gathering of of the uh the nations in
2: in, in the South, uh, in Latin America that uh, uh, have committed themselves to greater uh, integration uh, and support for one another. Uh, TCP part of it is is based on the the strengthening of of economic ties between the various nations, either the the, the progressive nations, if you will, uh, here in the region. There is a civil society component to ALBA um, uh, that's uh, very important. Uh, but this is the Bol- Bolivarian uh, process, the Bolivarian peoples and states process uh, here in the region, um, and you know we say to to Albert TCP, go all the way, and basically uh, don't attend, uh, don't submit yourself to the indignity of this process uh, in in Los Angeles, so starting on on June on June eighth. Ajamu Baraka, as always, thank you so much for
0: your time. Really appreciate that analysis, and we look forward to having you back.
2: My pleasure. Thank
0: you. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's another hour on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. There is an interesting piece in Consortium News uh, in The Angry Arab, Lebanon's hung parliament. Did Hezbollah really receive a devastating blow in the elections? Assad Abu Khalil says the answer is not as simple as Western coverage makes it seem. For insight into this, let's turn to our next guest. He's a Broadcaster and journalist based in Beirut, Lebanon, Laith Marouf. As always, Laith, welcome back. Thank you for having me. So, Assad Abu Khalil says that the gist of Western headlines about Lebanon's election earlier this month were the same that either Hezbollah and its bloc suffered a severe blow or Western allies won hands down. More than at any other time in uh, his political memory, Western coverage of Lebanon and the Middle East in general can't be trusted. Your thoughts, Leith Marouf?
7: Yeah, definitely. If you actually go down into analyzing what really happened in the elections, you'll see that Hezbollah uh, retained with uh, Amal uh, all the Shia seats in the parliament, meaning uh, they didn't lose any seats themselves. Uh, And their main Christian ally, the patriotic uh, movement, is the one that lost some seats. But ultimately, the biggest uh, opposition, let's say, to Hezbollah, the bloc that used to be controlled by the Hariri dynasty, the future party that representing the Sunni uh, population, with this dissolution... Uh, their vote got scattered uh, into many smaller parties and uh, independent, quote-unquote, uh, new voices. So, although uh, the bloc that could be considered as a Hezbollah bloc doesn't have an absolute majority now, it is still the largest bloc in the parliament. One other thing that people must understand is that uh, because of the sectarian Election uh, uh, process here. That means that uh, uh, Hezbollah's, you know, candidates, for instance, were receiving around 400 000 to 500 thousand votes, while uh, you know, candidates that uh, were representing uh, smaller uh, minorities were getting into office with 800 votes, and that's an, a crazy situation. So if if we actually want to look at how many people voted for Hezbollah and its bloc, it's clearly more than sixty percent, even sixty-five percent of the public in Lebanon actually voted for the uh, Hezbollah uh, bloc. And uh, in in reality, again, this is a sectarian country. It's uh, part, of, you know, constitution has been in in in, in effect since the. French came
3: into here and, and messed it all up. Uh, yeah, let me ask you this, Late, because that's the thing that stuck up out to me reading the article, and that is that a country that's majority Muslim has to have a split um, government between Muslims and Christians, and they have these, I mean, just colonialist, absurd rules to decide how many people of this sect or this religion has to hold this position. Is there ever a talk— amongst anyone running for election about the potentiality of changing, of changing the um, election laws, of changing the constitution? Is that ever a discussion or is that something that it's just, they made it so hard to do that it's impossible to change?
7: Yeah, I mean, there's always this discussion of uh, creating a secular uh, electoral process, but ultimately because of the foreign interference imperialist uh, interference in the country that is impossible to do and uh, you know you the fact that uh, this composition of having a president that is christian a, a prime minister that is sunni and a uh, speaker of the house that is shia this is based on the census that was conducted by the french in 1942 and since then of course, now more than half of the population of Lebanon is Shia, let alone just uh, Sun Muslim. So, what does that mean if we, they, if they actually even conduct, if they actually conduct a census in the country here? What will happen is that, and and if they even maintain this sectarian uh, vote, uh, the what will what will end up happening is that the president has to be Shia because they are the majority. But uh, the you know Hezbollah and its allies do not want to make any of this, the minorities, especially the Christian um, Maronites, to feel that they are going to be uh, having to live with a majority dictatorship where uh, the voice of the Shia will kind of drown them. So that's what we're where we're at. You know, as long as there is international interference in Lebanon. There will be no solution to its uh, sectarian problems. Uh, talk about the
0: impact that uh, Saudi financing is uh, having on this uh, on on the electoral process.
7: I mean, it's crazy. The Saudis spent uh, hundreds of millions of dollars to you know try to have influence, and as 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 we know already, and some of your listeners know this. Uh, the hariri uh, family uh, we, you know were kind of forced out of politics by the sauds because of, you know the, the 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 former prime minister here when uh got elected last uh, in the 2018 round uh, was uh invited to riyadh uh and then you know strapped to a chair and slapped uh, silly until he Uh, resigned from uh, Riyadh on live television. So what we know is that the Hariri dynasty have refused to uh, engage in a civil war as the Saudis wanted them. The Saudis know that it is the Sunni population that has the ability to have a civil war but doesn't want it. And the Maronite uh, sects cannot have a civil war even if they want it. So what what the Saudis did by, um, you know, Neutralizing the Hariri and the Future Party is that they put all their hopes behind the Phalange, the Christian supremacist party led by the uh, Samir Jaja, the former war war criminal, um, and of course that's a losing battle because Samir Jaja cannot bring them the votes and definitely cannot bring the votes of the Sunnis behind them. So ultimately. You know the aim of the Saudis with all this flooding of money into the country here for to affect the elections is to tamper or temper, sorry, the the uh, leadership of uh, Hezbollah and make it impossible for them to govern. And as we see, that continues right now with their continued investment in uh, media in the country here to uh, create chaos uh, through propaganda.
3: Um, what's going on with Iraq's um, elections? It seems that they're still short of forming a government. Oh,
7: yeah, and it seems that they will be short of forming a government for a while more because uh, it's a similar situation there. Uh, we have, uh, you know, three sects as, as, or, or you know, contentious, uh, uh, you know, Groups in the country—you have the Sunnis, the Shia, and the Kurds, which are Sunni. So it's just weird how how the division in in uh, Iraq is both ethnic and uh, religious. Um, and uh, as we see now, the uh, block that the Saudis and the Americans were backing has not been able to form a government, and the opposition, uh, you know, led by the uh, resistance groups uh, that fought ISIS are refusing to uh, host, uh, you know, or or hold, allow this bloc to govern without a national consensus. So if there is no national consensus, there will be no government. We may see even a new election being called in the next few months if uh, this doesn't result in anything. But ultimately, as we see across the whole of uh, Western Asia, uh, the situation is that as a stalemate, uh, in Syria, in Iraq, in Lebanon, in Palestine, in in Yemen. and the only way out is through confrontation. somebody has to have their head bashed in. One of the part one of the two camps has to lose uh, and uh, accept that loss. until now we don't have anybody that accepted a loss and everybody's holding their breath uh, to see how the uh, situation in Ukraine, and the you know international game between the big players is going to affect uh, the region.
0: Uh, talk about this oil uh, seizure war that seems to be going on with Iran uh, seizing Greek ships after the United States seized Iranian oil in Greek waters. This reminds me a lot of the United States and in, in the in the Barbary pirates back during. Uh, Thomas Jefferson's
1: era.
7: Oh, yes, yes. I mean, this is now, uh, we are definitely back to those eras of uh, early days of uh, colonialism by the West. Uh, The West is not able anymore to maintain its economic advantage without uh, resorting to outright uh, piracy and uh, highway robberies. Um, And of course, uh, right now, Iran is uh, not going to allow and if this to continue, we saw how the Greeks, uh, as a government, uh, are, are just beholden by the American power and had no choice but to comply with what the United States uh, ordered them to do, which is to seize this ship and then transfer all this Iranian oil into an American ship, which is now going all back to the U.S. with this looted oil. and. Um, you know, this this came like a week after actually the Greek foreign minister was speaking to his Iranian counterpart, uh, and we were talking about uh, you know strengthening the ties and and creating more trade between the two countries, and which maybe is the trigger of why the Americans did this uh, and the Iranians. Within less than 24 hours, uh, retaliated by confiscating two uh, Greek ships carrying oil coming from uh, the other Gulf vessels of the United States, and and threatened. There was at least another 12 Greek ships in the in the Gulf, and they threatened to capture more of them if the uh, Greeks continue to act as uh, as uh, lackeys of the Americans. Look, we're at a stage right now that the United States lost its ability to do such actions without retaliation from mid-sized countries like Iran. It's not only Russia and China now that can challenge American hegemony. uh, It is also Iran, and uh, I hope more other countries will follow uh, the lead of Iran on this, uh, on how to deal with the United States.
3: You know. Additionally, I think I think there was a number of things. I also tend to think that there's a move afoot, probably within certain factions of the Biden administration, that want to put the final nail in the coffin for any possibility of the uh, reviving the JCPOA. What do you? We got uh, two minutes. Your thoughts.
7: Yeah, I mean, look, uh, this keeps on going back and forth, the GCPOA. Uh, We hear today, um, you know, the prime minister of the Zionist colony claiming that the Iranians stole uh, documents from uh, the International Atomic Agency uh, that allowed them to, you know, uh, escape the monitoring, which is, of course, a a huge uh, claim that cannot be proven. And uh, Iran is going to continue uh, with its program uh, that is peaceful, that is not military, and will act as if the United States and the West do not want to rejoin uh, the JCPOA until the West and the United States actually uh, prove that they want to deliver on their obligations. And so I personally think that there will be never a return. We're just going to keep on hearing talking about it over and over until there's uh
0: no end Laith Maroof as always thank you so much for your time we really appreciate that analysis and we look forward to having you back you have a great evening you too folks you're listening to the critical hour on radio Sputnik I'm Wilmer Leon I'm joined here by my co-host Garland Nixon there's more on the other side stay tuned We are back, and you're listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. There is a great piece in Consortium News, Phase 3 in Ukraine. It opens no amount of Western military aid has been able to prevent Russia from achieving its military objective of liberating the entire territories of both Lugansk and Donetsk as phase three begins. For insight into this, let's turn to our next guest. He's a former U.S. Marine Corps intelligence officer who served in the former Soviet Union implementing arms control treaties in the Persian Gulf during Operation Desert Storm and in Iraq overseeing the disarmament of WNB. And he's the author of this piece, Scott Ritter. As always, Scott, welcome back. Thanks for having me. So before we unwrap phase three, quickly explain uh, one and two. Well, phase one was uh, the just
8: basically a product of reality. I think people need to focus on <clears throat> the fact that uh, you know, Russia is a country that is uh, assiduous in the legality of its actions. I know there's eyes rolling everywhere in the West right now, but uh, it's it's the truth. Um, It it may be a foregone conclusion when they initiate the legal process, but there is still a process that must be done. And the reason why they call it a special military operation and not an invasion and not a war is because it's not an invasion or a war. It's a special military operation that has been authorized by the Parliament of Russia, in accordance with the Constitution of Russia, per a request made by uh, the Russian president to use Russian military power to assist in the uh, preemptive collective self-defense of Lugansk and Donetsk, the two breakaway uh, Russian-speaking um, oblasts or provinces of uh, Ukraine, um, that had been terrorized for the past eight years by the Ukrainian government. 14,000 people on both sides uh, killed, most of them uh, Russian speakers. Um, the parliament allowed the president to carry out a special military operation. This means that there, there was no general mobilization. They used the military resources on hand, that is peacetime generation of military resources, around 200,000 men, uh, to carry out the task of liberating Donetsk and Lugansk. But there was more than that, because there was a cluster of 60,000 elite Ukrainian troops that were on the verge of launching their own preemptive action against Lugansk and Donetsk. So Russia needed to eliminate this threat. Um, That's where the imminent aspect comes in. There's an imminent threat that allows Russia to take preemptive collective self-defense action in accordance with Article 51 of the United Nations Charter. All this is very important, because... Russia is on the verge of finishing that right now. They're finishing that which they are authorized to do under international law and under Russia's own domestic law, the liberation of Donetsk and Lugansk. But in order to do that, there needed to be a phase one to shape the battle, to prevent the Ukrainians from reinforcing uh, their buildup in the East, to prevent the Ukrainians from... from diverting sources from other areas uh, to shape the battlefield in Ukraine's favor. Phase one was shaping the battlefield in Russia's favor. It was a success, a costly success, but a success nonetheless. And then phase two is what Russia is doing right now, pushing the Ukrainians out of Lugansk and Donetsk, solidifying the land bridge connecting Crimea with uh, the Russian Federation via Lugansk and Donetsk and expanding the kerosene bridgehead to secure the water supplies. Uh, And Russia is on the verge of accomplishing this. Even the West has to admit right now (laughs) that uh, Russia's winning. And it's not even Russia's winning a little bit. It's Russia's winning in a big way. Uh, The Ukrainians are panicked. uh, The West is panicked. uh, Europe is panicked. Everybody's panicked. Uh, And so that's where we're at with phase two.
3: Let me ask you this, Scott, because you know the big question is: um, I certainly tend to believe, as I guess you do, they're going to Odessa, they're going to build all the way to t- Transnistria. The question is, do they go to Kiev? The question is, they—and this is a big discussion—they haven't blown the bridges on Kiev. Does that mean they're <laughs> using them to cross over into Western Ukraine? Your thoughts on um, that part of the—you uh, know—the—the the, the continuation? How far does it go?
8: Well, I believe that the special military operation can be continued per its existing legalities uh, to uh, take out Odessa. It wouldn't have, except the West has uh, helped Ukraine once again commit suicide by providing them with long-range anti-shipping missiles. Uh, With these missiles installed in the vicinity of Odessa, uh, the Russian Black Sea fleet is at risk uh, to a depth of several hundred kilometers into the Black Sea. This is a situation that Russia simply cannot allow to uh, exist, and they will eliminate it, I believe, under uh, the framework of the special military operation. So that'll be, uh, we'll call that phase 2.5. Uh, they're going to move in, clean out Odessa, but, and then they'll link up with Transnistria in the process. But now the next question is, what do you do next? Because what's next is you're going to have to punch through the new defensive belt that Ukraine is building right now using the billions of dollars that have been provided by the United States and Europe to reconstitute uh, you know, damaged or destroyed brigades and to rebuild brand new brigades, armored brigades with advanced, you know, with T 72 tanks, with uh, provided by Poland, uh, with uh, self propelled artillery provided by France and Italy and other nations. Uh, the United States has provided, you know, long range precision strike artillery. This artillery uh, is already having an impact on the battlefield. That doesn't mean that Russia is losing. What I mean by an impact is. People are dying on the Russian side. Equipment is being destroyed on the Russian side that otherwise would not have been had the West not provided this equipment. Um, and so this is complicating Russia's picture. And I believe that Russia has insufficient force to do anything other than hold what it is it captured in phase two, including Odessa. Um, and then what have a have, have just have an artillery duel uh, with Ukraine um, you know, I don't think that's a victory for Russia, uh, which is why I believe that in order there's going to have to be a phase three and Russia is going to have to come up with a new legal structure to justify uh, the continuation of these operations, either as an expanded special military operation or war or whatever term they want to come up with. But at the end of the day, if Ukraine doesn't surrender and capitulate and de-nazify and demilitarize, um, Russia's going to have to do that for them, and that means that it will be an operation that um, moves into central uh, Ukraine, uh, threatens uh, Kiev, um, threatens and or occupies the Volk. Uh And this creates a, another re- realistic uh, problem where Poland is talking about coming into western Ukraine. So we have the real chance that Russian troops and Polish troops will meet on the field of battle in western Ukraine, which means Again, Russia's going to need more resources than it currently has.
0: You in your piece, reference uh, the general the main operational Directorate of the General Staff of the Armed Forces, uh, Colonel uh, General Sergei Rudskoy. And you say that the history of the conflict has proven him correct. Gone are the bold pronouncements made on the eve of May 9th Victory Day celebrations when Russia's many detractors proclaimed that the phase two had stalled. You say such fanciful thinking has given way to a kind of hard reality that ignores propaganda and favors the dirty task of destroying the enemy through firepower and maneuver. In uh, an earlier conversation that we had with Mark Schloboda today, he said that he noticed around this past Thursday a change in the U.S. narrative that now in many mainstream sources, they are having to admit that Russia is making greater progress than it originally pronounced. And I asked and, and said that I was starting to see people such as Henry Kissinger and others talk about this from a policy perspective, calling for uh, that, you know, a, 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 a peace treaty is going to have to be signed. Uh, Kissinger went so far as to say Ukraine's going to have to give up territory. In what you just referenced in your piece, was that similar to what Schloboda was was talking about, what he was seeing last week in terms of a change in the narrative?
8: No, there's definitely been a change in the narrative um, in in, in the past week. The the Western media and Western governments have caught up. Look, something really important happened uh, last week, and it it segues into what I'm about to say. Um, uh, Mr. Brunel, the uh, head of the foreign policy of Mm -hmm. uh, the European Union, uh, whom the Russians dislike, who the Russians blame for the disruption of relations, uh, he came out and he said, Europe cannot defeat Russia in a battle, in a war. Europe. That means NATO. That means all of Europe together cannot beat Russia. They don't have the military for it. He he admitted that their military is totally unprepared. They have no resources. They have no training. They have no equipment. They have no force structure. They have nothing. I've been saying this all along that Europe is a joke, a pathetic joke. They have equipment. They're sending the equipment in. The Ukrainians are fighting with that equipment. But for instance, if Poland tries to come in, with what? Their military will be annihilated. Yes, they'll kill some Russians, but the Russians will kill all of them. Um, this is the reality. And Europe has backed itself into a corner by, putting, or by going all in on Ukraine in the hopes that the Ukrainians could forestall a Russian victory. They're now looking at the reality that Russia is going to win this and win this in a big way. And then what? And then what? And they've got nothing and they're starting to panic. I don't know if you were following, uh, <laughs> you know, for, for weeks now, General Miley and Lloyd Austin were calling their counterparts. So there used to be the tradition that if General Miley picked up the phone, uh, General Gerasimov would pick up on the other end. And they would have a polite conversation to deconflict, just to keep each other aware. Uh, and Lloyd Austin did do the same thing with uh, Marshal Shoigu. Uh, but the Russians stopped picking up. They just said, don't, don't answer that phone. We don't, we don't want to talk to these people. They got nothing. Um, but then the Americans called uh, about last week, maybe a little bit prior to that, and uh, the Russians picked up, and they had a conversation. And the United States isn't talking about that conversation. And I have an idea what was in the conversation. I think the Russians said, look, if you guys want to provide them with weapons that kill our troops in Ukraine, we're not happy about that, but we'll live with it. It's called big boy pants. We put our big boy pants on. We understand what's going on. Um, But if you provide them weapons that threaten our ships in the Black Sea, if you provide them weapons that allows them to attack Russian cities, then we're going to hold you accountable, as we said we would at the beginning. And that means we're going to strike and strike deep. That means Ramstein's out. Everything's out. Anything that touched that weapon on its way in to kill Russians inside Russia is out. So don't do it. And did you see what Biden's doing today? panic. No, 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 HIMARS, no high uh, long range missiles. No, we're, we're not, we're not going to give them that stuff. The Americans are in a panic now because they have to be careful. They had leaned so far forward with the new lend lease with all this other stuff to provide weapons that they now have to realize that no matter what they send in, not only are they going to lose everything they sent in everything, but if they send the wrong stuff in, they're going to lose in a bigger way because Russia had said, we will reach out and touch you. And Burrell and the rest of NATO is going, we we don't have anything to stop them from touching us. And if they do, it's not going to be an Article 5 because we started it. We sent weaponry in that attacked Russia. That changes the whole dynamic. So there's a lot of panicked people right now in Europe, a lot of panicked people in Washington, D.C., and a lot of people in the media waking up to the harsh reality that they've gotten it wrong, all wrong. And Russia's going to win this thing big, but again, unless Russia puts more resources in, there is a real chance that this thing could spltify into some sort of um, you know stalemate uh, with, a, with a large front uh, with artillery barrages that um, you know I've always said Russia's not going to lose on the battlefield, but if Russia doesn't defeat Ukraine on everything that they've said they wanted to up front, then Russia loses the war because war. It's not about the battlefield war. is a continuation of politics by other means.
3: Uh, We only got one minute left, Mark, but what about Ukraine being able to reconstitute a military after a a major defeat in uh, Donbass and how that affects the the morale of troops that want to go back out there? We only got about a minute.
8: Uh, I don't think anybody should denigrate the Ukrainians. Um, The territorial forces are struggling. They're not trained. They have low morale. The professional troops are very good and those who survived being defeated or being reconstituted. Um, Remember, Russia lost millions of people in the uh, great encirclement battles in early 1940, or or, or the early stages of uh, the German invasion in 1941. And then they threw a lot of people into the battlefield in front of Moscow to slow the Germans down until they had a reconstituted force. The Ukrainians are trying to repeat that lesson of history. Uh, So I don't think it's impossible for Ukraine to reconstitute. As I say to everybody, $40 billion, no matter how you parse it out, is an awful lot of money. And you can do a lot of stuff when you put that much resource into, you know, to to address a problem.
0: Scott Ritter, as always, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate that analysis, and we look forward to having you back. Thanks for having me. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. U.S. policymakers misjudged inflation threat until it was too late. Officials often played down rising prices as problems mounted around the world. Prices for just about everything Americans buy gas, groceries, housing, cars, clothes, even TVs have spiked in the past two years. Inflation, which had been scarcely noticeable for decades, is suddenly the top concern most people have about the economy, and it all seemed to catch up to Washington. By surprise. Well, for insight into this, let's turn to our next guest. He holds a PhD in political economy. He's a professor in economics and politics at St. Mary's College. He's the author of a number of books, including The Scourge of Neoliberalism, U.S. Economic Policy from Reagan to Trump. He is, of course, Dr. Jack Rasmus. As always, Jack, welcome back. Always glad to join you. So this article talks about the uh, inflation catching people by surprise.
9: You weren't surprised. No, I've been predicting for at least six months or more, from about October, November, that it would be a chronic, protracted, uh, rising uh, inflation. Um, See, if you break it down and you don't listen to the ideology BS coming out of uh, the politicians, uh, you can see the various forces, uh, and they're not simply one one uh, one factor determining, uh, you know, the rising inflation, uh, you, you can see it fairly well. In fact, uh, I talked about this on my own radio show, Alternative Visions, a week or so ago called The Anatomy of, of Inflation, and I'm writing a piece on that. Um, we can talk about it when it comes out. But, uh, you know, very clearly it started out supply side, a little bit of demand. Uh, then you got chronic price gouging going on by corporations, which is still going on. You can see it in oil. Uh, you know, gas and energy and utilities and all those monopolistic uh, companies, you know, we, the latest thing is the airlines, uh, which raise prices 18 percent in one month, are saying, uh, oh, they're going to be more inflation. Well, sure there is, because Delta, the price leader, is cutting 100 flights a day. That's reducing supply in order to drive up the price. It's price gouging going on. But then overlaid on all of that, which was occurring last year and still is, uh, you got uh, the war in, in Ukraine, which is driving up all of the commodity prices, including oil, which is going to continue to rise. A lot of other metals, industrial metals, grains, and so forth. And now you got, uh, it looks like China's beginning to emerge from its uh is, is shutdowns here. That's going to increase demand for these same commodities, going to drive them even further. Uh, and then you've got... Um Unit labor cost problems are rising here because productivity is collapsing in the US. Uh, and They're going to pass that on to everybody. And now you got inflationary expectations. Well, all of that stuff is driving these prices. I talked about it last year. But what you get out of the politicians is, uh, well, even Treasury Secretary Yellen said, oh, it's going to be temporary. Yeah, sure. Uh, and then the politicians say, oh, we gave everybody too much money. Their, their, their savings, their, their wallets are fat. Well, the mm. data just came out last week that the savings rate has collapsed and it's now lower than it was in 2008. Uh, so if you look at the truth, the facts and not the ideology, you can see what the causes of inflation are and why it's going to continue. Dr. Jack,
3: the other thing I think when looking at this article, when I see U.S. policymakers misjudged. It implies honesty and goodwill. It implies that they can't figure out what Dr. Jack can figure out, and they can. That They didn't tell us it was transitory because it was transitory. They told, it to, told us those things for political reasons. So these kind of articles imply that our leaders are acting in our best interest, but every now and then they make a, an honest mistake. And in my opinion, I don't think they're honest mistakes. I think they know what they're doing, and they're just For political reasons at the time, they say what they need to say, but they're taking actually taking actions that are not in our best interest. Your thoughts?
9: Yeah, well, there's a lot of truth to that. There's also some truth that they're just stupid when it comes to their own economic ideology. They believe it, you know, like they believe raising interest rates is going to dampen inflation. No way. It's a supply-side monopolistic war-driven inflation. the The Fed can't do anything for that, but that's their ideology. They think that that's going to work. So some of them are dumb, okay? Some of them really know, and we're hoping uh, that inflation would come down by the spring. Uh, but then, of course, uh, you know, Biden pops this war on them, and that just keeps the whole thing going. Uh, which is a big driver right now, um, as you can see, even especially with the, the UE, European inflation now uh, really beginning to take off. Um, so it's, you know, it's partly that they're dumb. It's partly that some of them were hoping it would come down. Uh, and it's partly that they got to spin this line uh, before the November uh, elections. So it's all the above, I think, why they come up with these erroneous, purposeful as you say misrepresentations of reality and that's what ideology is economic idea ideolo- ideology is it's purposeful misrepresentation of reality
0: you mentioned the EU and we had talked about it uh, earlier earlier in the show That prices in the eurozone touched another record high in May, challenging the European central bank's view that gradual interest rate increases from July will be enough to stem the soaring inflation. So the banksters in the EU seem to be finding themselves dealing with the same challenges as the banksters here, and they seem to be uh, employing the same failed strategies,
9: Well, it's a capitalist uh, strategy and a capitalist ideology, whether it's in Europe or whether it's here. Uh, And, you know, Europe's even worse basket case than the U.S. when it comes to the economy. They can't get their economy really going very well. uh, And now they're going to have to raise interest rates. That's why they're uh, really biting their nails and saying, gee, if we raise interest rates, they're going to slow things down even more. You know, uh, what can we do? And um, big debate over how fast and how much to raise rates. But I'll tell you, the bankers want higher rates because higher rates for the banking sector means a significant increase in a profit center for them, which is called net interest income. You get the spread, you know, you raise, they raise their rates and and they borrow the money uh, from their central bank and, uh, you know, it's fatter profits for them. The bankers like higher interest rates. Because that allows them to charge more for money. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I like that. Yeah, net. Go ahead, Garland.
3: There's a uh, uh, there's another discussion going on now about student debt relief. Um, President Biden is now saying he'll do ten thousand. It's going to be means tested. He's getting some pushback from the left flank of the Democratic Party, and I'm sure there are going to be people saying, "You just gave forty billion dollars away to Ukraine, and you can only do ten thousand for some people." Um, I, I think that's going to be a um, I think that's going to cause a lot of friction and anger. At any rate, your thoughts on the student debt debt relief plan?
9: Yeah, uh, well, two things. First of all, uh, the rates for student loans are going to go up in July 1st uh, significantly because Fed rates are going up. Uh, so the $10,000 will pretty much just cover the, the, the increased interest rate costs that uh, student students are going to have to bear. You know, it's kind of like a, an interest rate forbearance for one year. Uh, And I think, you know, they're going to probably announce the end of forbearance for student loans. In other words, everyone's going to have to start paying again. Uh, So... You know, this is designed to soften that blow. But I'm not all convinced that it actually will happen. You know, this may be just a a marketing ploy, political marketing ploy before the November elections. Uh, Keep people voting for the Democrats because, gee, maybe if they come in, they will do what they said. You know, one more time, let's give them one more chance. You know, (laughs) I'm not so sure you're going to see it. I think it may be just another uh, talking point, you know, to try to pull people, fake them into voting. Uh, one more time. Uh, but if they do, you know, it's it's just a token thing uh, to offset the interest rate hikes uh, here as they end forbearance in general. That's the way I see it. Uh, not much to it, if anything. So if you follow
0: the Student Borrower Protection Center, they're saying that Biden needs to cancel at least $50,000 of student debt per borrower generally, Jack, what would something like that do to the economy?
9: Well, it may put a significant amount of money back in the hands of uh, working and middle class folks who are the big, uh, big indebtors here, you know, with the student loans. Uh, I, I mean, the student loan thing is is really a travesty when you think about it. The federal government charges students way more than the banks do for student loans. Think about that a minute. Why is the government charging so much more than the market? Well, that's because the government pushes people into the laps of the banks to consolidate at a lower interest rates. That's the shell game that exists. The government has a higher rate to push people into the arms of the banks once again, so the banks get that money. That's why You will never see a lower interest rates charged by the government for the kids than the bankers actually charge for the kids. Think about that. I mean, uh, that's criminal almost. You know, the government is exploiting the hell out of the kids.
3: Let me ask you this. I hear about slabs, student loaned asset backed securities. And one of the things that I've heard is that Biden can't really forgive student loans because the Wall Street banks and these banks have chopped them up into little pieces into asset-backed securities and sold pieces of them so that if they were to disappear, then these kind of magical devices of the asset-backed securities would not be have any assets that they were backed on any anymore. Anyway, your thoughts?
9: No, I mean, uh, you know, $50,000 isn't going to collapse the industry. You know, the derivatives industry Slad, what you're talking about, right? Uh, Maybe some of the investors uh, will, you know, get a a lower income stream because, you know, there's less principal being paid uh, or interest rates. If you lower the interest rates, there'd be less interest being paid. But these people aren't going to go broke, you know. And, uh, you know, that's just another example of, of how the financial system, Uh, is so dependent on derivatives now. You know, it was the same kind of a financial security uh, that collapsed uh, the housing sector. Uh, It wasn't the collapse of the housing sector that was a problem. It was the collapse of the derivatives based upon the housing sector that uh, caused the banking system to freeze up. AIG, for example, right? Remember AIG, the insurance company? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, So, you know, we've got a mountain of derivatives out there, and uh, you can say that about anything, uh, because just about every security has a derivative uh, bet on it. Um, but though it's not going to collapse it. Uh, I mean, maybe if, if you wiped out all the debt, it would, right? Because it's over $2 trillion, by the way. About $1.78 trillion, uh, for government loans and then uh, student loans. And then you've got uh, uh, about $200 billion in parent loans for education for their kids. So it's a $2 trillion debt out there. If you collapsed at all, if you got rid of it all, well, yeah, that would put these derivative speculators, who are a lot of them offshore investors, by the way, uh, in some some trouble. But so what? You know, let them catch the heat for a while. Uh, I don't think there's any problem in letting those people go bankrupt. We have just about a minute
0: and a half left. EU sets harshest Russian sanctions targeting oil and insurance Uh, Your thoughts on what's going to happen to the energy prices, the inflationary impact on energy prices in the EU, and is this just further evidence that one of the underlying motivations behind all of this is the United States wanting to control the international energy market?
9: Yeah, well, you know, first of all, uh, that's a declaration and announcement, but uh, you read the fine print and what they're saying, they're going to phase it in, Mm -hmm, right? mm -hmm. They're going to phase it in very slowly, by the way. Over the next year, right. Yeah, Europe is dependent on about 30% of its oil uh, from Russia. And then there's certain countries, uh, you know, like Hungary and others uh, who aren't going to go along with it. So they're exempting um, pipeline oil going into Europe, you know, uh, just just the shipping oil going into the ports in Europe. Well, don't think for a minute that Hungary is not going to uh, over uh, over request uh, and uh, you know oil, in other words increase its its oil coming in and then resell it to other others elsewhere in Western Europe. You've got a big loophole there, uh, and they know it. So it's not going to have much, if any, effect. Uh, on Russia and its its shipment of of oil, Uh, just as natural gas is even in a worse situation. They're not even thinking of, of, uh, you know, stopping natural gas flows. They can't. They're too dependent on it. Uh, And they're saying, well, we're going to get the oil from uh, uh, the extra oil we need that we can't bring into the ports. We're going to get it from the Middle East. Uh, yeah, you're going to pay more for it, and uh, you're not going to get a lot of it right away because uh, Saudi Arabia says they're not going to up their production. Okay. Uh, so a lot of this is is just um, uh, messaging, marketing talk, political talk, and so forth. But it does cause the speculators, the buyers of oil futures, to jack up the price. Okay. So they're not going to get as much oil, but they're going to pay a hell of a lot more for it.
0: Dr. Jack Rasmus, as always, thank you so much for your time. Greatly, greatly appreciate it. We look forward to having you back. Always glad to join you. Folks, you're listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. People's Dispatch has a piece entitled, Indio-Pacific Power Dynamic in Radical Shift. The recent joint air patrol by Russia and China displayed a very high level of military cooperation at a juncture when the two countries are facing new provocations and added pressures from the United States. What are we to make of this? Well, for insight, let's turn to our next guest. He's an international geopolitical consultant, global speaker, author, veteran, and former international security analyst in Washington, D.C. He's the founder of Global Perspective Consulting, headquartered in Dallas, Texas. Dr. David Walalu, as always, sir, welcome back.
5: Pleasure to be with you guys.
0: So, how significant was this uh, joint military uh, cooperation? Between China and Russia, especially when we add that uh, China just flew some jets off of the coast of some uh, Taiwanese islands uh, earlier today.
5: Well, that's very significant. Uh, just for your listeners to know, the joint uh, uh, drill between Russia and China gives you an idea about—God forbid, of course—should there be a World War Three. This is how it's going to be. So to me, uh, that is very, 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 very serious as to the indication of what is the message that is sending to the West. Uh, without going into more detail as far as what type of aircraft and all that, suffice it to say that both Russia and China, in the case of, uh, of Russia, they used the Tu-95 or well, the Tu-95 MS. Those are usually strategic missile uh, carrying bombers. Okay, the Chinese used the. Uh, they have one uh, one type that's called the H-6K. Those are strategic bombers. Of course, they were provided uh, by escorts of uh, fighter jets. So, the point is, this is an indication of what lies ahead militarily. Should the West flirt with the idea of pushing uh, both the the dragon and the bear to the corners, this is the type of reaction we're going to see. The joint military uh, efforts at an unprecedented scale.
3: What are your thoughts on uh, President Biden's recent trip to, um, r- to, to uh, the Asian Pacific didn't seem to go as well as he thought? And we see in um, uh, countries such as uh, India, we see in Philippines, even now to some extent in um, Australia, that the elections don't seem to be going in the direction that Biden's hawks would prefer.
5: Well, indeed, Galen. the idea of the trip of President President Biden to South Korea and Japan, uh, we should put it within the context of, uh, personally, for me, and I speak for myself here, I'll put it within the context of the fear of the United States losing its influence in the Asia-Pacific. That is the whole reason for the trip. Yes, of course, he sends a message as far as containment of China, which is not going to work anyway. And the indication to that, it's always perceived into uh, the the details of the trip. And here is a thing for your listeners to know. Usually, the president of the United States goes to Japan first. This time around, he went to South Korea first. The landing, Air Force One, didn't land in Seoul. Air Force One landed in Osa, which is a U.S. military base, about 46 miles from the DMZ, the the demilitarized nuclear zone. The first uh, b- the order of business President Biden did in South Korea was to visit Samsung because of the microchip. All this sends an indication as to how concerned the United States about losing Asia to China, of course, because China is expanding both militarily and economically. And also to put this within the concept, the context, or the frame of why Russia and China conducted the joint drill, it was during the meeting of the Quad in Tokyo, which happened on uh, Tuesday 24th. That's when it was. So the idea that both China and uh, Russia sends a strong message to the United States that don't ever think about it when it comes down to this part of the world.
0: Do you think the U.S. commanders, the members of the Joint Chiefs, for example, were surprised By these joint drills, and what do you think they said to each other in their in in their post drill meetings? Your thoughts.
5: Well, usually, Wilmer, the idea of that the commanders understand the realities on the ground, but the commanders have to to the line with what the White House wants. You know, you take for example this idea now, as uh, Garland mentioned earlier about the flights of the U.S. fighter jets into the airspace of Taiwan. You know, usually uh, the commanders understand the dynamics of what it's like to get in a hot war with China over Taiwan, which will be a sort of, a, it's not gonna be limited to that part of the world. They understand this reality. That war, that hot war, God forbid, if ever it's launched, is gonna go outside Asia. And we don't want that. You know, they do understand the realities that you cannot no longer Think of China as it was this country that was 30 uh, years ago, 40 years ago. It changed militarily. The hardware that China's developing, it's of great concern. Yes, we still have a mighty power military, but when you have China and Russia joining efforts, you know, U.S. cannot fight to to war front. It's just not going to be able to. So the commanders truly understand, but they can't speak. Look no further than what took place in Afghanistan back then with General McChrystal. When he provided his assessments about the realities, he was yanked out of his position. So, which is sad and unfortunate because it's the American people that's going to end up paying the price like what we are seeing right now with this Ukraine crisis.
0: So going back to the piece about the Indo-Pacific power dynamic, they talk about three things emerging, Beijing continuing to adhere to the letter and spirit of the joint statement of February 4th with Russia, Uh, the Chinese perspective, the three-month-old Russian operation in Ukraine has not changed the current imperatives, and that Moscow and Beijing are circling their wagons. Uh, Your thoughts on those three elements?
5: For China, it's kind of because it stood its ground regarding where it sees the conflict regarding uh, Ukraine and and, and Russia. And they don't want to sort of align themselves with the West with whatever they were expecting. You know, Asian countries, on the other hand, they are looking where the trends are headed. You know, of course, China takes the lead because of major economic powerhouse. And this is why this is why President Biden, when he went to Asia, his last trip, Want to South Korea first because the White House have been pressuring South Korea to kind of issue negative statements about China. And they said, no, we can't because our economy depends on the trade with China. Japan understands that reality as well. Of course, the case of Japan, it has to bow to the U.S. pressure. That's why Japan reversed its decision regarding the sanctions of Russia. But this is the... I, this is the idea of uh, for, for China is moving into whatever strategy it has been thinking about and put in place or in motion decades ago. This is one thing we don't do very well. We don't have a strategy long term.
3: Let me ask you this. Um, uh, 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 looking at um, how China sees the Ukrainian um a uh, 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 crisis. What? How do you think? And looking at this, what the what, the, what, what they pick up from this? I, I'll just throw one thing at you. I think one thing they they pick up is this: the European um, alliance that the U.S. has is in real trouble. And if they can wait six months to a year, I don't see how that alliance stays together because of the economic pain. But at any rate, what do you think they're picking up? Picking up from it? You,
5: you hit the nail on the head, Garland. And I'll go with the statement this morning that came out of Brussels that they saying that finally the EU agreed to ban 90% of Russian oil, which is, hold on a second, which they're not disclosing the truth here, because you have members of the EU that are opposing to that decision, like, for example, Hungary. Hungary imports about 65% of its energy from Russia, and they are not going to want to risk their... Uh, uh, economic prosperity. And this to me, the decision in Brussels, it's a signal of the beginning of the end of the EU as an economic bloc. They are realizing that. This is what pre- prompted the United States now to say to Ukraine, we well, are not going to be sending you heavy weapons. As my party was a statement from the White House regarding this. To me, that's an indication that this is going nowhere. And they're starting to realize maybe they sort of didn't think through before they embarked on this wave of sanctions and so forth. Now it's backfiring at the European uh, Union first, and we are seeing also here at home with the energy prices as we head into the summer uh, season.
0: So as they're talking about blackouts in Europe in the winter, if this whole anti-Russian oil movement uh, moves forward. The I can't see the geopolitical landscape in in the European Union, uh, particularly with these parliamentary systems. Uh, there, I think we we'd be seeing a sea change here,
5: most likely. And the reason being, you look at it from the economic aspect, but touches on the finances. What do I mean by this? Because you could see you you, you could possibly see some countries leaving the EU, like, for example, Portugal, like Spain, like Italy, like Greece. And why is that? It's because they depend greatly on the EU buying bonds to keep those countries floating. Well, this is going to come at the expense of the citizens in countries like Germany, in countries like France. They're going to be saying, wait a minute, what are we subsidizing this for? You know, the other country is going to be thinking in terms of now we have to pay more for energy. Why? Because that was the decision by Germany and France. Because any time we think of the EU, just for your listeners to know, usually who are we talking about? We're talking about Germany and France. Germany puts about 25 percent of the GDP of the EU. France puts about 19, Italy about 12 you're not going to think about it. Uh, the Czech, they put about 2%, Spain about 8 Poland about 4 they don't matter. And this is why many decisions in Europe regarding the European Union or the collapse of its economy is going to fall back on the ina- inadequate leadership of the European, because Europe it has no backbone to stand on its, fo- on, on its feet as of today.
0: Dr. David Walalu, as always, thank you so much for your time. Greatly, greatly appreciate that analysis. And we look forward to having you back. My pleasure. You've been listening to The Critical Hour here on Radio Sputnik. Thank you for allowing our voices into your space. On behalf of myself and my co-host, Garland Nixon, we hope you were informed and enlightened. We look forward to talking with you all right here tomorrow on Radio Sputnik. Be safe. Peace and blessings. We're out.